Well, good evening. Welcome back to our study of the book of Romans. I want to welcome those of you joining us from Edmond and those of you on the live, uh, live feed. So you're welcome here, and I'm glad that we're all here to study the Bible together. Uh, this is another fascinating lesson, and it just kind of keeps building. So let me say a prayer, and we'll jump right in. Lord, thank you so much for the ability that we have to come together and dive into your word. I pray you would open our hearts Place your words there. May the attitudes of our mind be set on the things above, and may our hearts be true to what we know to be true. Father, we are grateful for the many blessings you've given to us. We pray for the leaders in our country that you would turn their hearts to you, that this nation might be a beacon, might be a light of justice and truth in the world. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as always, I want to remind you, you can text your questions during class to that number. It's also on your handout, so if you have questions, feel free to text those. Let me give you just a little background because the Apostle Paul, writing a letter to Christians, Christ followers in Rome. He's never been to Rome. He's heard that there are people who've come to follow Christ in the big metropolitan city, really the capital of the world. And before he can get there, he wants to write them a letter. Well, what does he want to tell them? He wants to tell them about the good news of Jesus Christ. He doesn't know what they've been told, and so he simply lays out in a very logical way what is the good news or the gospel of Jesus Christ and what are its implications for our lives. Well, that is timeless. That's just as valuable to us as it was to them. Romans is probably the most profound the clearest and just the most beautiful exposition of what is the good news of Jesus Christ and what does it mean for us. Well, remember, it starts differently than you would expect, at least according to you know, the way we tend to think of it today in 21st century American Christianity. It starts with, hey, all of you have a sin problem? Every one of us as humans have a terminal disease called sin that will take us to the grave and will take us to hell. And so he's, that's the way he begins. He said, listen, we have a problem. And so he says, but here's the good news. I mean, we've talked about this. If you don't believe in the wrath of God, which is how this starts, and the justice of God, which we all desperately want the justice of God, the problem, Paul says, is we're on the wrong side of God's justice because we are sinners. He said, hence, the good news. The gospel, that word just means good news. And he said, the good news is this. It's a historical event that I am going to tell you about, Paul says. It's not a philosophy of living. It's not a fairy tale. It's not some cosmological system of you know, just ideas that'll make your life better. He said, no, I actually want to ground this in real life history. There was God come to earth in human form, his name is Jesus the Messiah, and he bore our sins on a cross, he was buried and on the third day he was raised. And because of that event, because of what Jesus did that we could never do, we've been reconciled to God. As many as place their trust in Jesus Christ are now reconciled with God and we are on the right side of God's justice. That's the gospel. That's the first five chapters of the book of Romans. A lot of words are used, I'm just going to remind you, if you remember, we talked about the word just, justify, righteous, righteousness, 
all the same Greek word, basically. They're all cognates, the same, basically the same Greek word. What does it mean? It has a couple of flavors. It means being just, justified, righteous means being legally or judicially right with God, meaning being declared not guilty. But it also means being relationally right with God. It's not just, okay, there are no warrants out for your arrest. You're on your, you go ahead and go on your merry way. Well, there's a judicial sense of your sins will no longer be held against you. But it's more than that. It's also relationally, it means that you and I can now have a relationship, God says. So righteousness, justification, talks about restoring our status and our relationship with God. It all happens through faith in Jesus Christ. We also talked about the words, the Greek word behind belief, faith, and trust, all the same word. I'm going to suggest that everywhere you see belief and faith, think trust. That's probably the English word that best captures what the New Testament is saying. So in chapter 5, verse 1, we read this. Since we have been justified, made right with God, through faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, because of what Jesus did, now that we place our trust in him and what he has done, we can have peace with God. That's the gospel. So then Paul begins to talk about, well, what are the implications of the gospel? In chapter 6, our last lesson, he said, now I know what you're thinking. He said, that's really good news. And probably you're asking this question. Well, can I just go on and sin then? I mean, I'm in good shape with God and Jesus covered all my sins on the cross. I guess I can do whatever I want, right? And Paul says, oh, heaven forbid. He said, let me explain to you what has happened when you came to place your trust in Christ. The analogy I used was an analogy of two roads, if you will. And so in chapter 6, Paul, he says, no, you can't keep sinning, but he says it for a different reason than you would think. He doesn't say, no, you can't keep sinning because you have to earn God's approval. He doesn't say that. You can't earn God's approval. Jesus Christ did everything that was necessary. He doesn't say, well, you can't keep sinning just because you know, God's unhappy with that. He says this. He said, when you came to trust Christ, there are two roads. One is called the road of sin. Let me tell you what I mean by that, what the New Testament, not, it doesn't matter what I mean by that, it matters what the New Testament means by that. Sin is basically talking about things like this. We used to be on the road to the left. I don't know why I picked the left. There's no political significance to this. I'm right-handed. I'm just going to say, <laughs> okay, that was a mistake. Okay. So let's say we're on the road to the left. The point is our former way of life. We were living in sin, and Paul says you were actually living enslaved to sin. In other words, it's a fundamental tenet of every Orthodox Christian that we could not change on our own. We could never measure up to God on our own. Even if we said, I don't like this life of sin, I'm tired of this, we don't have it in us to say, I'm just going to be a great person and God's going to be okay with me now. We don't have that in us. We were slaves to sin. What do I mean by sin? Think self-centered life, living it for me. No matter what I said I was living it for, it was really for me. Think about things like sexual immorality, yes, but also things like greed, wanting, getting, placing my trust in possessions. Think about 
envy. Think about gossip. Think about unkindness. Think about holding a grudge. Think about all of the things that Jesus and the New Testament authors talk about as sin. All of those things are heading in a direction that does not lead to God. According to the scripture, they lead to death. It says here, for the wages of sin is death. That road leads one place, and it doesn't matter how nice a person you are. There are people on the road to death and sin who are nicer people than maybe some of us. But they're on the road that only leads one place. When you came to trust in Christ, Paul says you were buried with him in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. This is not a self-help plan. This is a recreation plan. In other words, you died to sin and you are now alive. I want you to think about you changed directions, which, by the way, is our word repent. Jesus, when he began to preach, I don't know what you think about Jesus preach, preaching, and he preached a lot of great things, Sermon on the Mount, all that, but what he basically preached was repent because the kingdom of God is here. What does repent mean? Sounds like a religious word. It means to change your mind and consequently to change your way of life. So when we repent, we basically went from the road on the left to the road on the right. We actually changed destinations. We didn't stay on the same road and say, I'm just going to clean my act up and I'm just going to be a better person. That's not the gospel. That's called self-help and it will get you only one place. That road only goes to death. The road toward righteousness, being reconciled to God, goes to life, goes to heaven. So we effectively changed roads. That's Paul's answer as to why we can't sin anymore. That's not who we are. So as he moves on, this is all review. Now we're going to move into chapter 7 and 8, and he's going to take it a step further, and he's going to start talking about, well, now let's suppose we're on that road to the right. We have changed direction. We are following Jesus Christ. We are moving towards life. What's it look like to walk that road? What's it look like to live that out? That's what he's going to talk about in chapter 7, chapter 8. Here's what C.S. Lewis said about that. This is an Lewis has an interesting take on heaven and hell, uh, but this is a great idea. Think about that road thing. C.S. Lewis said this, Christianity asserts that every individual human being is going to live forever. And that's either true or false. Well, we believe that that is true. Now, there are a good many things which would not be worth bothering about if I were only going to live 70 years, but which I had better bother about very seriously if I'm going to live forever. For example, perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy or greed or substitute any sin in here. Uh, are gradually getting worse, so gradually that the increase in 70 years will not be very noticeable, but it might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is precisely the correct technical term for what it would be. In other words, when I'm on the road that I used to be of self-serving, I might be a nice guy, what will I be in a million years? In other words, that road, Lewis says, leads down, 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 and you begin to see it in our world, the downward spiral of humanity. We don't get better on our own. But when you change to another path, you begin to put aside all of those sins that want to entangle us, and that's the Christian life. I'd like to bring in one other idea because I just want to tie the Bible together for you, and we have to have a map. So I want to take you back and I want you to think about, I wanted you to think about the Christian life as going from one road to another. 
It's not about how good you are. It's about which road you're on. What's your destination? I want to take you back to 1400 BC. This is another historical event. This is called the Exodus. So the Israelites in 1400 are living here. They're slaves to Pharaoh in the land of Egypt. So I'm showing you that on the map for those of you listening on the podcast. Moses delivers them. Actually, Moses doesn't. God does. He simply sent Moses to tell Pharaoh, let these people go. And, and God, through his power, not the Israelites, they didn't rebel. They had no power at all. And yet, miraculously, because of God's power, he brought them out of slavery. Is it starting to sound like the gospel? I want you to think now. We were slaves to sin. God came to us and freed us from sin. We did not do it on our own. I want you to see the Exodus and the gospel are very much mirroring one another. That's intentional. That's why the Exodus happened, is to forecast this. So what do they do? They're freed from sin. What do you and I do? We're freed from sin. We want to go to the promised land. Promised land is up here. We would call it heaven. They called it the land of Israel, what we now call the land of Israel, the land that was given to Abraham for his descendants, the promised land. And so we see heaven. We saw slavery in our past, right? Slavery to sin. We were on a path that led nowhere but death. That's all the Israelites had to look forward to. And in Egypt is you work yourself and then you die and you get nothing for it. And that's us. We would serve sin all our lives and then we would die and we would be dead eternally. So we see now the end of our road is the promised land. Well, what happened to the Israelites? Well, I've said before, it was easy to take the Israelites out of Egypt. What wasn't so easy to take Egypt out of the Israelites? In other words, they came out of Egypt and so they were physically free. They still had the mind of slaves. They still had a heart that was bent back toward the gods of Egypt. And so God takes them through this journey to purify them. In other words, they learn to trust God. Remember the manna in the desert? Manna, for those of you that aren't familiar with this, is they had no food. Every day they would get up and miraculously there is bread. One day at a time, just enough for every day. They learn to trust God because if that bread didn't show up, they were going to die. And so God began to develop their trust their faith. And so they lived through this desert experience, if you will, on the way to the promised land. And in that time, God is refining their faith. It wasn't purposeless. They weren't lost. God was using that time to refine their faith. So you go to Sinai, then they go north into the wilderness of Paran, the wilderness of Zin, basically big old desert right here. They spend 40 years doing this. And eventually, they come around and they go into the Promised Land, cross the Jordan River. But this experience between Egypt and going into the Promised Land took 40 years, and it basically taught them to trust in God, because what was coming, they would need faith. I want you to think about our lives a little bit that way, in the sense that we too were freed from slavery, sin. We too got on a new path, right? And we too see reunion with God, the true promised land, heaven, at the end of our road. But as we walk this road, what is God doing? Well, let's just go to heaven right now. Well, we're going to live out our lives and we're going to have some trouble, aren't we? Jesus said, oh, by the way, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I will get you to the promised land. I have overcome this world, meaning 
you will get to the promised land. You will go to heaven, but you will have trouble in this world. Well, why? And Jesus says, because, this is in 1 Peter, he said, because your faith, your trust, which is worth more than gold, will be refined in these difficulties in your life, the joys and the hardships. Think about ourselves as being on this journey and think about God's purpose in that journey is the same as it was for Israel. That's gonna help us understand what comes next. Let me pause for questions and we're gonna go into the tail end of chapter seven and chapter eight, but with that set up, you'll understand what Paul wants to talk about. He said, you can't sin anymore, you're on a different road. Now he goes on and he says, and by the way, let's talk about what that road's gonna be like. So, time out there for a second. Question. We'll have a question about the path the Israelites traveled. Yeah, I made that path up, okay? A question about the path the Israelites traveled. I don't know if they went into a holding pattern there or not. No, seriously, what's the question? Well, there, there are actually a lot of debates about the route that they took. The question is, um, where did they cross the Red Sea and why was it so far out of the way? Maybe that would be the Jordan River up there. Yes, so let me just go back to the map. Let me use a little thinner line here. Okay, where did they cross the Red Sea? Probably in the northern part of it, simply because the, I mean, the text doesn't say it was mile marker 72, you know, but the text implies that when they left Egypt, it wasn't that long before they were at the edge of the Red Sea and it didn't need to be much because they didn't have boats. I mean, they left their pickups, they left their boats, they left everything. They come out and now here comes Pharaoh's army. So you know that it was the Red Sea. It was clearly big enough that when God parted the water and they crossed, those chariots couldn't get across and that whole army was drowned. You also know it has to have been relatively close to where they were, which is the land of Goshen. So that's why I'm just going to say it's probably somewhere in the northern uh, part of the Red Sea. And second part of that question was? They went all the way up north to cross over into the land of Israel. Now, the land of Israel... So here is the Sinai Peninsula, which has had a checkered past even in recent times. But the Sinai Peninsula is where they wandered in the desert, and it is indeed a desert. This is Israel up here at the top of the map. And you notice they cross over here into the eastern side of the Jordan River. This is the Dead Sea at the bottom of this map. This map doesn't go far enough up to see the rest of it. But the Jordan River is right off the top of this map. That's where they crossed in. But they spent most of their time here in the Sinai Peninsula. Then when they left that after 40 years, they simply went around the Dead Sea. You can see it up here at the top of the map. Went around the Dead Sea on the south, came up on the east side, and then crossed over at Jericho, which is unfortunately off the top of this map. I hope, hopefully that's clear. And do we know that because there are roads today? I mean, why did they go, why do we think they went that way? Why do we think they went that way? They went that way because God told them to go that way. Uh, well, I mean, I'm not trying to be facetious. They went that way because God told them to go that way. They hung out in the desert because God told them, you're not ready. Your faith is not ready. We haven't gotten Egypt out of you yet. You are still moving along. And so uh, they weren't ready. And then when they were ready, there, I think there are subtle long-term reasons why God this, but instead of just having them go in the southern part of Israel, come up through the Negev Desert, that's what's at the south of Israel, has them go around, 
because at the Jordan River, it's basically a big rift valley goes down to the Jordan River. If you come straight in from Israel from the south, there are mountains there, difficult, difficult terrain. If you go on that uh, rift valley and you come up beside the Jordan River, much easier traveling than you make a left turn and you go into Israel. So I'm not sure what God's purpose was, but that's how God told them to enter the land. So good question. Also sets God up to do something faith building again as they get ready to cross the Jordan River. It's at flood stage, they can't cross and God stops the water. And the people in Jericho go, uh-oh, their God must be real. So God orchestrates all this for a variety of reasons, but that's a great question. Well, let's go to the end of seven. This is a hotly, hotly debated passage. Um, scholars have been arguing about this, killed so many trees to write so many treatises about this. But here's Paul speaking about walking that road to follow Christ. Listen to this. We know that the law is spiritual, and I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. What I want to do, I want to do good things, but that's not what it is. I end up doing what I hate instead. And if I don't want to do it, I agree the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it. It's that sin that lives in me. It still holds on to me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I just can't carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want. No, the evil I don't want to do, that's what seems to keep happening. Now, if I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer me. It's sin living in me that's still controlling me, basically. I'm editorial. Uh, editorializing here a little bit. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law or another rule at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work in my members. A couple of points of view, there are actually several, but a couple that I want to tell you about here. but first, let me step back, give you a little theological idea. We've talked about justification. Justification, becoming righteous, means it's that process, it's that trusting in Christ that I am now judicially okay with God. In other words, he said, my justice required that you be an object of wrath, that you would be destroyed because of your sin. But now, because you placed your trust in what Jesus did, you are not guilty not because you're any better, but because Jesus covered your sins. That makes sense, right? You're justified. And there's a relational component. In other words, we're not just justified, we're reconciled. We can have fellowship. That's justification. That happens when we place our trust in Christ. We basically move from the road that we used to be walking, that self-centered, live-my-own-life road, to a road that says, that old man died, and I'm now following Christ. That's justification. There's another word you're going to start seeing a lot called sanctification. Sanctification and the word holy, sanctify, that's also all the same Greek word. And all it means is this, is to become holy. What does holy mean? Well, we have the idea that holy means, oh, you act better than everybody else. That is not what the New Testament means when it says holy. Holy simply means you become completely set apart for a brand new purpose. In other words, if you have shoes you only mow the yard in, they are holy shoes. In other words, they are set apart for a purpose. Now, that's a kind of a low uh, example, 
But God said, not only have you started walking this road, but the process that you're involved in walking this road following Christ is called sanctification. It's called making you holy, meaning making you more like me. You are no longer common. You are no longer a part of this world. You are now different. I am making you different. That's why, for example, think Ephesians 1. For God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. We'll talk about that next week. Before the foundation of the world. Why? To be holy and blameless before him. Well, I can't be holy and blameless. No, Jesus can justify you and the Holy Spirit is going to sanctify us. In other words, as we walk that road, we become more and more like Jesus Christ. That process is called sanctification or being made holy or being set apart. As you can see, I'm on a road that's diverging. The farther I go down that road toward God, I'm way away from the world, right? In other words, I will behave differently, I will think differently, I will love differently. So justification, sanctification. So in this passage, people say, okay, what is this talking about? Well, there are two ideas. One, it could be talking about Paul saying, even as I follow Christ, I find pesky sin continually trying to grab me and pull me back off this road. Some people think this is Paul as a Christian or us as a Christian walking this road and sin is still trying to reach out and grab us. I don't find that very convincing biblically, but you will probably read people who see that. Here's what I think is more likely, and there are a lot of theories, but I'm just going to give you a, a little bit different one. Uh, well, here's, first of all, here's Tim Keller. By his own efforts, Paul knows that he will fail. This could just be you and me. We are walking this road, and even though Christ has justified us, in other words, we left our life of sin and we follow Christ, we still can't make it all on our own. By his own efforts, Paul knows that he will fail, and so will we. There is no hope in ourselves for our salvation nor our obedience. In other words, on my own, couldn't be saved. On my own, can't walk that path. Can't become holy on my own. For our salvation, we can only ever look to God's Son dying on a cross for us, as Paul showed in chapters 1 through 4. That's the gospel. For our hope, meaning attaining heaven, we can only ever rest in his righteousness as we saw in chapters 5 and 6. And for our ongoing obedience, for any real change in our lives, we will need to rely not on our own efforts, as chapter 7 is established, that I try to do the right thing, I can't always do the right thing. If it's up to me, I just can't behave well enough. He said, we can't rely on our own efforts, but on the work of God's Holy Spirit, which will transform our lives and our relationships. That's what chapter 8 is going to show. And that's what I want you to think about, is even when you become a Christian, first of all, it's not true that once you become a Christian, you don't sin anymore. That's not true. It's also not true that once you become a Christ follower, you just sin like everybody else. Nothing has changed. Neither one of those two extremes are true. In fact, you are set on a different course. And you now have the Holy Spirit of God working within us. This is key to understanding the Christian life. Sometimes we think, or we act like we think, and been there, done that. I became a Christian, and now it's up to me to change my behavior. I need to be more patient. Well, I need to be less greedy. I need to give more. I need to do this. That won't work. That's not the good news of the gospel. How then do we walk this path? Well, let's look. 
Richard Longenecker says it this way. He says, this awful lament, that passage, should be understood as Paul's rhetorical soliloquy in which he sets out a speech and character, anyway, it's a rhetorical form, regarding the tragic plight of all people who attempt to live their lives by their own natural abilities. That chapter 7 is describing what happens when you and I become a Christian and we decide, okay, now it's up to me to act more like Christ. We couldn't get there on our own, and we can't walk that road on our own. And that's what I believe chapter 7 is talking about. You can try all you want, but sin's going to keep dragging you back. So what's the answer then? Here's the end of chapter 7. I'm going to skip that for now. Paul says, what a wretched man I am. In other words, I can't do this on my own. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, still a slave to sin. Think about those Israelites that come out of Egypt, and on day one, they don't turn out to trust God. In fact, they start grumbling. Hey, why don't we go back to Egypt? It was not so bad there. It takes them time to really trust God. It takes us time too. That's called that process of sanctification or being made holy. And chapter 8 says, Therefore, because of that truth, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. In other words, just like it took what Jesus Christ did for me to change course, I still need the ongoing power of Jesus Christ to walk that path. That is good news. I don't know if you've ever tried this, but to, you say, okay, I'm a Christian now. I better behave like a Christian. I'm going to try hard, try harder, going to measure up. Oh, I'm not doing very well. You get into self-help versions of Christianity. You get into real behavioral motivation. Uh, you get into what I call the Christian roller coaster. Hey, I've been good lately. I'm close to God. Oh, oh, that was not good. I have not been good lately. Haven't prayed, haven't read my Bible, haven't been nice to anybody. Okay, I'm going to try harder. Okay, now I'm in God's good graces. That's a roller coaster. Why? Because I'm trying to do it myself. This is revolutionary. Just as we relied on Christ to be able to change course to head toward life, we still rely on Christ to fuel us, to power us, to be able to live the Christian life. Here's what I mean. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to read this. It's a beautiful passage. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Well, good, because sin keeps dragging at me. He says, because through Jesus Christ, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, and that it was weakened by the sinful nature. In other words, my behavior, law, think of law as trying harder. Think of law as trying to measure up, trying to behave better. He said, that's powerful, but you know what? It is not able to overcome my sinful nature. I can try as hard as I want. I'm still going to go wallow in the filth, right? We're all going to continue to sin on our own. So those who live, according, verse 5, according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Now this is the first time that we've heard about the Holy Spirit. So what's he really saying here? He said, you know what? Now that you've begun to follow Christ, you have God's Holy Spirit within you. Ephesians, another letter in the New Testament, chapter 1, verse 13 said this, when you placed your trust in Christ... You were sealed with the Holy Spirit as a down payment to guarantee that God would get you to the end of this road. And that spirit, you know what that spirit wants to do inside you? Wants to make you holy. 
wants to help you walk that path. It is the power of the Holy Spirit, not my own ability to act better. So a lot of times we get in these self-help things to become better Christians when we need to be more letting God work in our hearts, let the Holy Spirit do what he wants to do in our lives. That's what this is talking about. It said, set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Think of it this way, cooperate with the Spirit of God. Quit thinking about sin. Think about what is true and beautiful and good. Recognize the truth of what you know, that the Holy Spirit lives within you and is more powerful than what's in the world. First John, he that is in you is more powerful than he that is in the world. In other words, God's Spirit is able to, over time, sanctify us and put to death the sin in our lives. I'm not able, but the Holy Spirit is. This should be very freeing because when you become a Christian and you just try harder to be a better person, that's not very joyful, is it? You know why Christians are joyful? Is you know the truth of this. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? It means I'm going that way. If I step off the path and I sin, I'm going to pray for forgiveness. I'm getting right back on the path and I'm going to keep following him. And his Holy Spirit will power me. It will sanctify me. It will shape me over time. That's what it means to be in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation once we are in Christ Jesus. That's good news. It doesn't mean, well, you're walking the right path, but I sure hope you do good enough. That's not much of a Christian life. There's no joy in that. This is what Paul's talking about. Set our minds on the things of the Spirit. The mind of the sinful man, verse 6, is death. But the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. And in fact, the rest of the book of Romans is going to tell you what it looks like to have your mind, your heart, your body controlled by the Spirit. He's, we're going to talk, he's going to talk a lot of chapters about developing that idea when it comes right down to the rubber meeting the road, what's it look like to live by the Spirit? So he says, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature can never please God. You, however, are not controlled by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin. This body will die, yet your spirit is alive because you are righteous. It's the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. So you get this, I want you to see this idea of Paul's giving us some really good news and I think a different tone than we sometimes hear. You're never on your own. You're never able on your own. Even when you place your trust in Christ, God expects us to become holy and his Holy Spirit will indeed accomplish that in us if we will set our mind on the things of the spirit and live according to that way. So, we're going to change subject just a little bit, so this is a good time to take a question. I hope that's good news. You should be encouraged. Half of you are smiling. You got it. That's it. There is now no condemnation for you. Question. How do we know we're becoming holy? I, I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. How do we know we are becoming holy? How do we know we are becoming holy? Ask your wife. <laughs> she will tell you if you are becoming more holy. I mean, it's sort of like owning stocks. Well, it's actually nothing like that, but bear with me. If you look at your stocks every day, oh, it's up, oh, it's down, oh, it's up, oh, it's down. That's so discouraging. You want to look, take the long view on that. Holiness is that way. In other words, you keep putting, setting your mind on the things of Christ. 
The Holy Spirit inside you will put to death over time the sin inside us. Look back at yourself if you want to be encouraged, and you'll see God's hand, you'll see the Holy Spirit's hand in your life, and you will see yourself becoming more holy. It's not a race. It's not like, oh no, I'm not as holy as Billy Graham. Uh-oh, I hope I don't die before I get there. It's not a race. Well, how holy do you have to be? The New Testament never says. In other words, it's not like, okay, I'm on this road. What mile marker do I have to get to to be guaranteed to go to heaven? Because I don't want to run out of gas before I get there. New Testament never answers that. You're on this road. You're following Christ. You trust the Holy Spirit. He will get you there. So I think you can see yourself becoming more holy as you see more fruits of the Spirit. As you surrender more, not try harder, surrender more to the Spirit and let the Spirit control and set your minds on the thing above and you begin to see the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, etc., etc. You'll begin to see those things happen. So I think you see it over time and I actually think other people can probably see it in you better than you can. And so hopefully encourage one another in that way. So what happens if we don't become holy? <laughs> what happens if you don't become holy? That is a great question because I com completely disagree with the premise. So I'm, I'm, and I mean this seriously. Thank you for asking that question. Think about this. It presupposes, and I suspect the person asking understands this, is it presupposes that, uh-oh, I better become holy. You can't become holy on your own, right? So... What do you do? You don't worry. You just surrender. Place your trust in Christ. Surrender to the Spirit. Set your mind on the things above. And when you sin, confess your sin, repent, meaning get back on the road, and God is faithful to forgive your sin. In other words, you can't not become holy if you're following Christ. Boy, that's a terrible grammar. Somebody's going to write in about that. You can't fail if you're on that road because the Holy Spirit will seal you. Does that make sense? If you are not on that road, you cannot succeed. If you are saying, well, I believe in Jesus Christ, but I don't. I don't actually trust Christ. I am living a life of sin. I'm not on that road. And it makes no difference what I do. That road only goes one place, and that is death. Have you placed your trust in Jesus Christ? Have we surrendered our life to him? He will get us to the end. He will make us holy. He who began, quote some scripture again to you, he who began a good work in you is faithful and he is able to finish what he has started. Good question. Okay, now here we're going to turn just a little bit, not because the text does, I just want to take it a different direction. So you begin to see now we're talking about, well, can I sin since I'm on that road? He goes, no, this is not the road of sin. That was the road of sin. Oh, okay, well, how can I get rid of this sin? Well, good question. You can't do it on your own. It's going to be the Spirit powering you. Place your trust in Christ. Surrender to the Spirit of God. Don't try harder. Get off that roller coaster. Wake up every morning and recite this to yourself. You should learn two verses. Well, you should learn a bunch. But you should learn two out of Romans. Chapter 5, verse 1. Since we have been justified by faith, by putting my trust in Christ, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then 8.1. 
Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Beautiful passages that totally describe the gospel. 5-1, But now, I want to take a little different turn because he's going to talk about holiness, but I kind of tease this on social media. Have you ever wondered what the purpose of your life is? You're about to find out. And it's not what you think. You're probably going to need to quit your job uh, tomorrow. But anyway, have you ever wondered what the purpose of your life is? And I'm not being facetious because God is about to answer that question because this answers that question. When you're on the road of sin and death, when I was my old self, I was looking for a purpose in life. I thought, well, maybe it's going to be to be CEO of the company. Maybe it's going to be having a wife, 2.3 children, three-car garage, play soccer on Saturday, and play golf Sunday afternoon. I mean, what is it? Everybody's looking for something, right? Everybody's chasing some purpose, and everybody's got a big old empty hole inside going, that's it? That's all there is? Once you change this road, everything has a purpose now. This is a beautiful passage. This is Romans 8, 28 through 30. We know that in all, he's again talking about walking this path, that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image or the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. You see this family idea again. We have now been adopted into the family. And those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified, meaning he will take you to the end of the road to heaven. So you, this is a really interesting passage. and it, There's all kinds of stuff. People use this for all kinds of things. We're going to talk about predestination next lesson. Chapters 9 through 11, probably more debated than chapter 7. I mean, what's going to happen to the Jews uh, do you, are, if you, are you elect or not? Are you already decided if you're going to heaven or not? We're going to talk about that next. So I want to look at a different piece of this. One of the implications of being on this path, the Spirit of God is within you, therefore there is now no condemnation. You just be faithful and trust God, and when you sin, you repent, and you get back on the road and follow him. Here's one of the beautiful promises, because you're in God's hands now. All things, God works for the good of those who love him. Think about those Israelites in the desert. They underwent some things that were not pleasant. And yet, when they got to the promised land and they look back and they go, that was not fun, but you know what? We are different men and women now. We are better for that. We trust God more now. That's what he's promising you and me. That's something that on that old path I didn't have. You know what I thought about trials and difficulties and losing a job and having a boss that was a jerk and uh, bankruptcy and illness and cars break down or, I mean, all those unpleasant things in life. You know what I thought about those things? You should avoid them because they stink. And that's about all I could tell you about it is, well, too bad. Hope it doesn't happen to me. It's sad that it happened to you, but at least it wasn't me. I mean, that's as good as it gets. This road, here's the deal. God says, no matter what happens to you, and as much as you can't see it in the moment, remember, we've talked a lot about, you know what's true, you don't always feel good about it, but you know the truth of this. You can be committed to the truth. He said, no matter what happens to you, no matter what you think in the moment, God can work for the good of us in all of those circumstances because we belong to him. That's just a beautiful passage. So 
what is, well, then what's my purpose? My purpose is obviously follow Christ, get to heaven. But here's the interesting thing. You can do this a lot of different professions, but God, those God foreknew, he predestined to what? To be conformed to the likeness of his son. And that what it literally means is, like, think about uh, transformation, you know, of a caterpillar into a butterfly. That's a transformation from one likeness, one appearance, to another appearance. In, in this case, a very beautiful appearance. That's what this says. We're going to take these ugly sinners, and because of what Christ did, and the Holy Spirit I will put in you, and the fact that you trust me, I'm going to take you from a slug. You know, I realize that I'm confusing the, all the zoologists in here, but okay. Caterpillar, slug, ugly, slimy. To a beautiful butterfly. In other words, he said, you are destined to be the exact spitting image of Jesus Christ. That is God's purpose in your life. I don't want you to think I'm being facetious or I'm trivializing it. That's all that really matters. Oh, you mean that God doesn't uh, have a huge preference if I'm a stockbroker or I'm a mortgage banker or I'm a stay-at-home mom or I'm a stay-at-home dad or I'm a car mechanic or whatever? Nope. God says, you can go be Jesus Christ in any one of those things because my purpose is to conform you to the likeness of Jesus Christ. I know that sounds trivial, but I really want you to think about that. That will change your view of your job. You'll go to your job and you go, oh, it isn't about being the CEO. It isn't about necessarily getting the next promotion. God's going to accomplish this no matter where I end up in this little rat race called life. That's encouraging. God's destiny and your purpose in life now is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. When I, that really sunk into me, when I went to work, I still did the best I could at my job. In fact, I worked harder because it's like, well, I'm going to bring honor to Jesus Christ. I'm going to show you what it looks like to be a Christian and work. I'm going to be a good employee. But all of a sudden, it was a little bit less about the, the formalities of the job and hitting the numbers and doing that, those were important. I wanted to be successful to show that Christ followers can be good, hard workers. But interactions with people became way more important to me. And I realized that being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ had less to do with my abilities at Excel and spreadsheets and more to do with how I treated the people around me. Does that make sense? That's God's using that. And it'll make a little difference in how you see your job and the whole purpose there. And believe me, it takes a load of pressure off of your shoulders. So your purpose for life is to be conformed to the image of, your, of uh, Jesus Christ. And you do not have to do it yourself. Jesus Christ is going to accomplish that. Well, he ends this chapter 8 because this is great news. I mean, everything so far except that first three chapters about how we are sinners and God's justice demands that we go to hell, that was bummer. But ever since then, you know, it's been really good news. You know, he said, hey, you got a problem and I've got good news for you. And all of this has been encouraging. I want you to think about this because this is true. Paul's saying this is true. Whether you feel it at any moment or not, this is true. This is your new status. And this is the way you think about this. You set your mind on the things of the Spirit. You set your mind on the things of Christ. And you, there is no condemnation for you. You are reconciled to God. Well, Terry, sometimes I feel far away from God. You're not. You're not. You're a prayer away. You're only ever a prayer away from God. 
You may feel far away. You may be down on yourself. But there is no condemnation. Jesus Christ can wipe that sin away and you can just say, Father, I sinned, forgive me, let's go. And you are, you are in God's good graces, if you will. In other words, you are reconciled to God. That should imbue the way we think about it. When you survey Christians and you say, do you feel joyful? Most of them say, no, and I feel guilty, and thanks for asking, because now I feel less joyful, right? <laughs> we answer that. You know why we say that? Terry's personal opinion, I don't think we really understand the good news of the gospel. If you believe this, you go, you know what? I'm not happy all the time, but you know what? There's no condemnation between me and God. My sins are covered, and I am putting slowly, the Holy Spirit is putting away piece by piece that sin, and I know where I'm going. And I look around and I see everybody around me in a different light. And the bad things that happen to me, they're not pleasant. But I know that God will work for good in all of this. In other words, you can have a sense of peace and joy even when things don't go well. We just think it's something we have to do on our own. I really think it starts right between our ears. And our ears, our mind needs to preach to our heart and say, listen, heart, I know you don't feel that good today, but let me remind you of what is true. I think we'd be more joyful if we just believed, oh, there's that word again, if we just trusted what God tells us is true. And here's how he ends it. This is gorgeous. This passage, by the way, one of the most beautiful passages in the New Testament. You could memorize it, you could write it down, or my personal favorite, you could have it tattooed on your forearm. No, I'm just kidding about that. If you do that, it's on you, not on me. But seriously, listen to this. What then shall we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? Meaning that pesky sin cannot ultimately defeat you. There is now no condemnation for those who trust in Christ. He who did not spare his own son, but was willing to give him for us, while we were still sinners, by the way, chapter 5 says, how will he also not graciously give us all things? Who can bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who is he that condemns us? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. In other words, this court is rigged. There is no accusation against you that can stick. The judge and Jesus Christ are on your side. Actually, you have gotten on their side. And so he says, who could separate us from the love of Christ? Will trouble or hardship or persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword... As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul's being persecuted when he says this, by the way. He says, look at my situation. This is not happy. This is not good. And yet I'm going to write this because I know none of these things can separate me from the love of Christ. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced neither death or life, angels or demons, the present or the future, no powers, no height, no depth, nothing else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a beautiful, beautiful statement. It is the concluding statement of everything that he said before. If all of those things are true, then this is true. Nothing 
can keep you from being reunited with God. Those of us who are in Christ, those who have placed their trust in Christ and are following Christ, nothing can separate you from God. I just want you to let that sink in. That is true. And if you believe that, that's part of believing that Jesus is who he says he is and did what he said he could do, and he will do, he will deliver you like he says he can. If you believe that, you can think like this. Question? Yes. Um, this is a question in thinking about your analogy from last week and then the picture reused again of choosing the path of righteousness and the idea that you can wander off the path and become lost. The question is, so are you saved by grace or are you saved by works? Yeah, good question. That's a trick question, isn't it? Okay, so yes, we are saved by grace through faith. Ephesians 2.8, you are saved by grace through, and I'm going to use the word trust, uh, same word, but you're saved by grace through your trust in Christ. That is the mechanism that God uses to save us, if you will. The question, I see where the question's coming from. I'm walking this path. And in Romans 6, Paul asks the question. This is where people are going to disagree theologically, by the way. But I'm going to bring it together uh, to where it isn't going to make any difference in the end. Uh, You're walking this path, and Paul says, well, can I continue to live a sinful life? He goes, no, that's that road over there. You're not on that road anymore. Okay, well, that makes sense. If I'm doing that, then I'm not here, right? I really haven't put my trust in Christ if I'm living that life. No, I changed. I repented. I'm following Christ. But then he says, well, what about committing sin? Can I still do that? He says, can you? You will, right? Christians do still commit sin. You're all going, whew, that's good news because I have been. Yes, Christians don't quit sinning automatically, but Christians also don't just sin like everybody else. There's a change, and that change is the Holy Spirit. He says, here's the problem. He doesn't, and here's the interesting answer that I think addresses this. His answer is not, okay, here's the deal. You can do two and a half sins a day on average. And if your average goes above two and a half for 30 days in a row, eh, you're toast. He doesn't say that, right? He says, or I'm going to give you a six-month probationary period, and if you're not significantly ahead of that, then you're out. He doesn't say these things. I'm being facetious, but you see what I'm getting at? He doesn't say, okay, we're going to test you and see how much better you are. That never comes into the equation. What's his answer? His answer is the reason that we want to confess and repent, meaning get back on the road. We want to turn away from sin every time we sin and be committed to follow Jesus Christ. He said, the reason is this. If you keep sinning enough, you effectively are a slave to sin. And I use my Girl Scout cookie analogy to say, well, which sin, Paul, actually made me a slave to sin? He said, I don't know. can't tell you which sin, but I do know this. If you continue a life of sin, at some point you become a slave to sin. He said, and that's not who you are anymore. So he answers that question differently. You are still saved by grace but it matters what you do. Because here, that was the big question in chapter six. Well, I'm saved, I'm on the right road. Does it matter what I do anymore? He goes, oh heavens, yes, it matters. Do you not know who you are? Do you not know that you're being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ? Of course it matters. Oh, then there's a test. No, there's no test. You just go be who you are becoming. He says, and if you keep sinning, what is that gonna tell you? 
It's going to tell you that at some point that's going to enslave me. It's like, it's not a matter now of I've crossed a line and I'm no longer measure up. We've never measured up. It's giving me an indication about do I really trust Christ or not. I think that's what he's getting at in chapter 6. So that may not be answering that question very well, but you are saved by grace. But what we do matters. It doesn't matter because we're going to... trying to live up to something, it matters because it's a reflection of what's in us. Think about James. James is going to answer this issue. Again, you're saved by grace through faith, not by works. But here's what he's going to say. He said, some of you are going to say, well, you have faith and I have works. And James says, forget that. Works are never going to save you. And they go, I know, I have great faith. James says, faith without works is dead. What he means is, If you really have faith, if you really trust Christ, you will begin to see fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. You will slowly become more like Christ. He said, those two aren't two different things. So are you saved by the works? No, not at all. But if they're not there, what is that telling you? Ooh, I have a trust problem. Does that make sense? It's all about the trust. And James says, that's all you really need because if you trust Christ, you're following him. You are going to be like Christ because that's who you are. This is a sidetrack, but anybody following the big discussion in the evangelical world about social justice? Okay, never mind. Well, (laughs) if you do, I want to solve it in this way. There's a big debate right now about Christians and social justice and how involved should Christians be. Some people say Christians are getting off track, getting way too invested in social justice. Others are saying, how can Christians not be involved in social justice? And there's truth in both of these. Here's the key. Why do Christians want justice? Why do Christians do good even to their enemies? Why do Christians do these things? Not because our works save us. We do those things because that's who we are. That is profoundly different. If we do social justice because we want to fix the world, we're wrong. If we don't do any social justice, we have no faith and we are in trouble. Do you see what I'm trying to say? We do good things not just to measure up. That's who we are now. We are children of God and we are going to act like this family acts. Do the things that your heart, when you pray, I would urge you not to pray, God, make me a better person. It's like, God, help me to surrender more and soften my heart. Let the desires of my heart be the desires of your heart. Let your Holy Spirit guide me in this. Does that make sense? That's what we want to pray because that's what makes us do it. That's how we're saved by grace, not by works. But if we have faith, we will inevitably live it out. Okay? I want you to stick this in your mind between now and next week because next week you're going to doubt everything. (laughs) Nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. Or at least some of you. Next week, are you predestined for heaven or hell? And Paul's going to take a turn and talk about the Jews, and it is fascinating. I'll see you next time.